An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to have as our special guest, Chanti Hurwitz, sculpture slash engineer slash fintech entrepreneur, although I don't particularly like those slashes, as I will explain later. To say John T is a world-class sculptor is true. His art has been subject to documentaries, critics' prizes, and a myriad of commissions. His awards, prizes, and shows have spanned the globe from the UK to Malaysia. But that description is also a bit narrow. He's a world-class engineer and coder. He's created the world's smallest sculptures of humans using photons, rather than chisels as his tools. You can only see them using electron microscopes, but that hasn't stopped hundreds of millions of people from viewing them online. His somewhat larger anamorphic sculpture is mesmerizing. The central object only comes into view as you change the angle from which you view it. He's taken Leonardo da Vinci's ideas of art and science and anthropomorphic painting and brought them into the 21st century and sculpture. Recognition from the art world has been global, and because of the unique scientific, mathematical, and engineering aspects of his art, he's also won plaudits from Nature, Scientific America, and Popular Science to go along with the Royal British Society of Sculptors. Jati is nothing if not interdisciplinary. To get back to that slash I mentioned, I don't know that I would call him an artist engineer. That implies doing two disciplines separately. He seems to combine science, math, coding, art, and anthropology into a harmonious whole that the hyphenate formula just doesn't capture. So yes, John T is an engineer and a scientist, but he abuses his science with empathy, curiosity, and intelligence, making it art. He's a financial entrepreneur, but he uses his art and science skills to enable visualization and artificial intelligence to help humans understand investments. He's an artist, who acknowledges his art couldn't be possible without contemporary up-to-the-second science, math, and evolution. Now, every episode of this podcast begins with a pre-recorded introduction, saying that this is the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. It's almost as if John T. were born to be a guest on this podcast, or perhaps the podcast was created for guests like John T. So welcome, John T. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me, John. That was a lovely introduction. So what's your origin story? I mean, interesting people have often had interesting lives and you've progressed from growing up in small towns in South Africa to traveling in India to creating beautiful sculptures that, as you say, are contemporary to the moment because they rely on current science. How did you become the person you were? I've been trying to work that one out and how did you become what you are? It's really hard to put it down to a single silver bullet moment or a single um, events that happens in your life, because you know, what you are is, is a culmination of all the things that have been, that bring you into this current moment. I suppose the cop-out is potentially my mother. 
<laughs> can, I, can, can I start by putting it all on my mother or is that a, too much of a cop-out at this early stage? I don't know. I'm a wanderer, a traveler, lived in many places, lived in many cultures, an explorer, an adventurer. And, and I suppose that's what's made me what I am, John. So you went to university in South Africa, yeah. you majored in engineering, you were a coder and your first job, you weren't an artist. You were a financial IT person, basically. You were working yeah. global asset management. You reported to the founder and famed investor, uh, Gebedable 10. And what was that like? He, he, uh, did not have a reputation for suffering fools gladly. Sure. <laughs> so you know about Gilbert and he certainly didn't suffer fools gladly. He was a, he was a real character all the way through my life. I've always had this, this, this combination of science and art. And I, I suppose I, I don't even like to call it a combination. Like you were saying, maybe potentially not even knowing the difference between the two, I would say is, is, is more accurate. And so I, I, I got the job. I'd come back from India, having spent a year learning wood carving in a tiny little village. And I found myself in London, you know, I, I hit my hippie head, you know, halfway down my back and um, suddenly I found myself in London and I got this amazing job with Gilbert. And next thing I was in a pinstripe suit in the city of London. And it was just part of the adventure rather than a, a specific strategy. And, and, and what I was trying to do was maybe bring, bring the idea of data visualization, you know, thinking about financial data, just like I might any sculpture or any other piece of data, I suppose it was uh, the early days of data science and, um, Gilbert was such a character. I mean, he, he really molded so much of me. I mean, you know, there were moments I, I remember one day I was sitting, working on some financial visualization, looking at currencies and I didn't even really know much about currencies, but I, I kind of figured if I got the graphic right, I would know about currencies. And, um, I, I linked my spreadsheet to the data. Um, I got a Bloomberg terminal and I you know, very happily linked my code and spreadsheet to the data. And about 15 minutes later, the entire financial institution went down and nobody knew why everything, the whole company went down, all the data. It emerged half an hour later that, um, that it was my spreadsheet that had taken down the, the whole company and the IT department went mad. And I remember Gilbert throwing things around the room and screaming and shouting and what, what's going on? Why is the system down? But then when he eventually realized that, 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 that I'd done it, this little 24 year old junior sitting in the corner of his office, he, he to, to create a visualization, he, he, he completely changed his view, you know? And so, so Gilbert didn't like mistakes, but if something like this happened with a, with a greater vision in mind, he was fine. You know, he came to me and he was like, John T, look, be careful next time, but thank you for making that effort. So he was a, he was a, he was a special character. He was demanding and fearsome, but an art collector in his own right and an artist. And, and in, in as much as he taught me precision, he, he also gave me a massive appreciation of art and a genuine mentor in my life, a genuine mentor. You mentioned something in that description that if you got the visualization right, you would get the numbers right. Most yeah. engineers and coders are more numerate than visual. Do you, mm. do you equally think visually and numerically? 
I, I think I'm completely visual. I'm, I, I pretty much know I'm completely visual. I mean, I, you know, I have this experience sometimes, and I think a lot of people do. I mean, I'd be interested to hear if you have this, but let's say I'm looking for, I don't know, my bag. And in my mind, I'm looking for my red bag, but, but actually um, it was my blue bag that I'd lost. And in, but in my head, I've got a certain color or a certain shape in my mind. I can literally have it in front of me, but if I'm not looking for that color or shape, I won't find it. So I think I'm completely, I think I'm very visual. Interesting. So. You know, I, I am as well, but many, many coders and financial yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Although I think that's changing, John. You know, I think, I, I mean, we're digressing a little bit now, but I think the world now, you know, what code used to be is different to what it is now. And I think now we all have an understanding of the importance of user interface and the importance of, of whatever you're making, having an ability to communicate with people. And I've, I've personally seen a very big change in the nature of coders now to what a coder was say 20 years ago, a very different way of thinking. It's interesting how it's changed. So why did you leave GAM? I, I found that I wasn't necessarily the type of person that worked well. Um, in a bounded environment, you know, I discovered very early on that I needed an, an, an uncomfortable amount of freedom in order to function at my best and, and the constrained environment, despite GAM being an incredibly, uh, you know, relatively speaking, incredibly flexible, the, 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 the constraints actually funny enough, after that spreadsheet experience, the, the, the way the IT department dealt with it at the time and the restrictions, it was too restrictive for me. It was, I, it's a decision that I sometimes think I made too early, but I was young and wild and I was young and wild. So let's talk about your nano sculpture, your first <laughs> nano sculpture. First, can you just briefly explain the engineering feat that creates this? I mean, we're talking about a photon that is the smallest particle known to humans. Two photons, I don't even know how to describe how small that is, but what is it about the microscopic scale that attracted you? I mean, many sculptures want to go huge, right? Memorial sculpture, commemorative sculpture, public sculpture. It's huge. Why go microscopic and how did you do it? Why go microscopic? It, it was actually interesting. I was in my foundry in the UK. We do the bronzes and uh, we do my bronzes for me and, and the bronzes for many others. And, and the founder of the, the foundry, John Varelovitz, or person who, who runs it, came to me and said, John, you know, it's really time you, you got into some scale in your, in your art career. And so I went back and I, and, and I suppose I spent some time thinking about what, what did that actually mean? What does scale actually mean? And I suppose part of being an artist is looking at any concept and finding, and, and especially for me, the work that I did, finding the inside out of that concept. And I suppose it was, it was, I suppose, a request to do something incredibly big that led me to the idea of doing something incredibly small. But, but maybe I'm over-intellectualizing it. You know, there's a part of it was just, which was just like, oh my goodness that well, I wonder how small I can go I wonder I wonder what's possible and you know that just set me off on a journey speaking to people I've always collaborate with people this, this idea of the lone artist sitting sitting at home kind of it, it's not like that you know I'm, I'm a collaborator and work with amazing people on every project and so you know the journey of finding people was absolutely incredible 
the, the technology that I ended up using was at the Karlsruhe Institute in Germany. And it was partly because I just met the wonderful team there and really resonated with them and discovered that they had this incredible technology subsequently now become more well-known in, in the scientific world. It's called a nanoscribe. Um, and, and what this piece of science does is as, as you rightly said it, there, there's this phenomenon in quantum physics, which was discovered some time ago that if you put two, um, very highly focused beams of light in absolute sync. And so that their waves, their wave, um, their, the troughs and peaks of the waves are synchronized every, every so often, you know, and every so often being in, in the quantum world, being relatively regularly, you get a two photons colliding. And at the point of that collision, there's a sort of mini explosion that happens. There's a, there's a mini manifestation of energy and that energy is hot enough and, and, and powerful enough to harden a tiny piece of resin. And so it's using that technique and, and, and the machinery behind that, that we were able to assemble this very, very tiny sculpture of, of my wife. It's a little bit like nano 3d printing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think your wife was the model for the first pieces, seven sculptures you did. Can you briefly tell us the story of those first seven? In a nutshell, what happened was, I mean, you can imagine how long these things take to make. I mean, you know, you're talking months and months and months of preparing and planning and, and whatever. And then, you know, people imagine that, that making some, you know, 3d printing or whatever, that's, that's not necessarily the, you know, that it's a science, but it's not, it's an art oh, things go wrong and that failed. And, and, but eventually we get these beautiful pieces onto this piece of glass. I mean, tiny to the extent of, I mean, an analogy I sometimes use is, you know, when you see a light beam coming through the, the kitchen window at that sunset and you see those specks in, 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 the, in the air and you, you know, you suddenly realize that the air has got stuff in it. You know, those sculptures are the size of those specks of dust to just to put it in perspective. And so, so we had a couple of them on a piece of glass. Um, which, which you couldn't see with, with the human eye. I mean, two, you can see that, that, that they're beautifully lined specks on the glass, but you can't really see anything else other than that there's specks there. Um, and, and I took it, I took it to, um, um, a specialist with a scanning electron microscope, which is a very high power microscope and he'd, he'd been photographing cells and illnesses all of his life in this, in this machine. And he photographed them and, um, you know, it takes hours just to find them in the microscope scope takes hours. And I stepped out for a few minutes, stepped back in, wanted to have a little look again. And suddenly looking in the microscope, there were all these like grotesque shapes in the microscope. And I was like, what's going on here? And we hunted and hunted and hunted. And these sculptures weren't there, but we'd just seen them half an hour before anyway. It conspired that he was so surprised by what he saw that he put his finger on the piece of glass and destroyed the world's smallest sculpture. I was like, what? I, I lost it. I lost the block. What have you done? He was like, well, I put my finger on. Where are they? Where are the sculptures? He's like, I don't know. Maybe they're on my finger. He was kind of in shock himself. But it turns out that that story was then published. The story that these sculptures were destroyed. And that was a big lesson for me because... I had the photographs before they were destroyed. And it was my, my young son that said to me, wow, dad, that's an amazing story. 
And so having lined up a few journalists, I told them, I'm sorry, I was going to show you the sculpture, but I'm afraid to report the world's smallest sculpture has just been destroyed. And that's the story that actually went viral. And the big learning there for me is that a story, the story is what resonates with people. And so actually there was a beautiful silver lining to that cloud. One of the um, series of nano sculptures that does exist is an homage, if you will, to Canova's sculpture of Cupid and Psyche. Canova, I'm having a little bit of time travel confusion, I guess. Um, Canova was an 18th century sculpture, a uh, neoclassicist. Yeah. Um, he based his sculpture on an ancient myth. And you based your very modern, scientifically enabled nano sculpture on an 18th century sculpture of an ancient myth. So I guess the question is why? <laughs> I think, I think all of us rest on the shoulders of giants. Everything we do every day, every thought we have, however original it may be, rests on the shoulders of a series of giants, you know? So you look at these nano sculptures, you think about the scientific, the thousands of years of scientific prowess and mathematical prowess and, um, that was required to, to bring the science and. And so what I wanted to do in this piece was not only acknowledge the scientific prowess, but also acknowledge the history of art and, and acknowledge, um, the, the emotional aspect and the artistic aspect that brought me to this point. And so in, in some respects, it was, it was an acknowledgement of both the scientific and the artistic history that culminated in that point. I think that's one part of it. That's the kind of intellectual side of it, the more spiritual side of it is, is that my wife and I did this together and we were inspired by this Canova sculpture. We had a very complex story ourselves, which, um, and cute, the story of Cupid and Psyche, the ancient Greek myth resonated with us. We felt we were a type of Cupid and Psyche story. And so it all just came together really beautifully, the emotional, the technical, the spiritual. I will not ask the specifics of your marital relationships is the myth for those listeners who aren't familiar with it is that Cupid in effect resuscitates psyche with a kiss. It's a very romantic story and I, I will leave that to your private musings. <laughs> Let's talk about something that doesn't require an electron microscope. You also do anamorphic sculpture. I briefly explained that what that was in the beginning, but for any of the listeners who are familiar with MCH drawings, for instance, or maybe you've taken some of those pop psychology tests, you know, where you've seen two faces or you're seeing a vase, but it's not quite that it is much more. You don't know what you're seeing until you change your viewpoint. Leonardo did some anamorphic drawings, pretty amazing given how long ago that was. And you now, I think are the first to really do an anamorphic sculpture. For instance, your sculptures often use curved mirrors to bring into focus the object of the sculpture. What is it about that that intrigues you? In, in almost all of my work, I think the, the essence is the idea of the, the coexistence of, of multiple realities. And I don't know, in, in, in quantum physics, they call it the Schrodinger's equation, or some of you might've heard of Schrodinger's cat in human society, they call it, I don't know, politics. There isn't a single truth. I suppose what I strive to do is find a way to benefit physics and manifest a, 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 a different reality or acknowledge the fact that 
kind of multiple realities can exist at the same time. And I suppose, you know, once again, bringing it back down to a personal level, it's taken me a long time to, to acknowledge this or to share it. But I mean, I'm somebody who's suffered from anxiety my whole life and it's, it's been an overriding energy, I suppose, and driving force and drawing down force, all sorts of energy, you know, all sorts of manifestations of, 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 um, anxiety. And I think, um, ultimately what that is about is your head being in many, 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 many different places at the same time. And all of these different realities playing out at the same time and your brain, your mind trying to solve for all of them at the same time. And, and so I suppose my work tries to bring that into focus. That, that complexity of too many things coexisting at the same time. There's obviously art, math, and engineering in your sculptures, but it strikes me that there's also sort of a performative element in that people sort of gasp and say, gee, how did he do that? And then actually you have to stop and look again at the sculptures themselves and try to appreciate them so that it's not just a, you know, a parlor trick. It's actually art. So do, do you think there's a sort of performative element in it as well? This circles beautifully with, with the first question in this podcast, uh, which, which eventually came down to my mother. Um, I'm the son of a drama teacher. <laughs> I've spent my life <laughs> on the stage performing. And I suppose an aspect of performing is trying to please and, 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 and getting the rush of the applause and, um, changing your reality and so yeah there's an absolutely a performative aspect to this sometimes i look at all the, the, the philosophical stuff whatever else and one way of looking at it at this is it's just fun i mean you know you come along you see something you look at it in a different way and it's something else and that is a beautiful performance and if you want to you can take the time to go why and how and how does this connect to me and how does this connect to my emotion and all of that is there but there is actually just the sheer fun of enjoying something that blows your mind. <laughs> so you've just proven to me that I've done good research because in doing the research for this, I said, gee, this is the sort of person I'd love to sit down with in a good pub and just <laughs> talk for a while, right? But I am going to ask you the philosophic question here, but not about art. Many scientists and artists through the ages have come to think of sort of math, philosophy, religion, even as multiple sides of the same coin. And so I'll just ask, how do you see math, science, and art interacting with the essential question of what does it mean to be human? Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go geeky here for a moment. I've been in denial about quantum physics for too long. <laughs> I finally acknowledge um, that it's time for me to sit down and actually start giving it some serious thought and some serious love, I suppose, you know. And, and where I've got to, one of the places I've got to is this idea of emergence in quantum physics and something that I've just discovered, actually I've discovered, I'm a, I'm a great lover of podcasts and, um, and I discovered it on a, on a wonderful podcast in the, in the quantum world, there, there are these trillions upon trillions and trillions of tiny interactions that are happening, which we're still struggling to understand to formulate why they happen or it, it's a little bit chaotic, but what we do know is that these, these, these interactions happen at a tiny scale. And then 
in quantum physics, there's this idea of emergence where what happens is you have all of these tiny quantum activities happening. And then if you multiply that out and scale it up, suddenly all of those tiny interactions turn into something much bigger, like gravity, the emergence of tiny things into something much bigger. Now, gravity is an example of what they call, what physicists call weak emergence. But then you also have the concept of, of strong emergence and strong emergence is something much more interesting. Um, a good example of strong emergence is consciousness, love. So how do all of these tiny little photons and particles and Higgs bosons all darting around eventually turn into something as complex as love or consciousness? And, and so I suppose if you ask me, what does it mean to be human? I think it's that. I think, I think if, if, if I look at all the tiny conscious or not conscious, but living cells that make us up, that go about leading their daily lives and the things underneath them that go about leading their daily lives, etc., And you go all the way down. Somehow we, we, we seem to be an assembly of smaller parts with, with an element of, of strong emergence. <laughs> Looked at. That way, quantum physics almost seems magical. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to go from um, quantum physics, emergence, consciousness, love, and magic to a very mundane question, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> You're also cycling back to your first job after traveling, a financial entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think your most recent effort is Daisy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I'd love to share about Daisy and I'm going to come back to that. And I'm going to come back to it through the previous question that you asked, what does it mean to be human? And, and I keep catching myself on this and, and, and this is the answer to your question about Daisy, but I, I gave you the philosophical side, but I don't want to leave out the emotional. And so I want to come back to this, what it means to be human and, 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 and what it means to be human is partly about your fears and your loves and the worries and survival and, and I suppose climbing your way up Maslow's pyramid of needs, trying to get to the top, you know, and, and a big part of being human is, is living the emotions. Coming to Daisy, I think the investment world that we live in now, um, has become, has become very very interesting. And I have to tell you when, when I did my research on you, um, before the podcast, and I found out about moving beyond modern portfolio theory, investing that matters. Um, I, I couldn't find a better answer for what is Daisy than moving beyond portfolio theory, you know, investing that matters really for, for, for me, Daisy is an amazing platform. An amazing app. Anybody can download it. Um, we've got no idea how we're going to make revenues yet, by the way, but that will come. That will come. Um, but, but, but what it's about is looking at you as an individual and going, what partly, what is the risk that you're actually exposed to? What is the risk you're exposed to? What is the actual, to the best of our knowledge at the moment, what is your carbon impact? And, and. And how does that affect your idea of risk? You know, so on the one hand, and, 
I know this is an investing podcast, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit technical here, but one way of looking at it might be, well, what is your net value at risk? You know, you've got one portfolio with your financial advisor, and then you've got your Robin Hood account where you're screwing around with a couple of meme stocks that you fancy. Um, and you've got your 401k somewhere else with Charles Schwab. Oh, and maybe your son's um, bought a, um, got a crypto wallet and has over. Uh, so what's your net position? So Daisy looks at it from that perspective and, and can say to you, uh, okay, John, you know what? Across everything, this is actually your value at risk. And that's one way of looking at it. But it also tries to go a lot deeper. I mean, we've got the amazing... Deborah Yang, who's the CEO, who's one of the founders of, of, of ESG with MSCI, and looking at, well, what does this actually mean in a much deeper way? You know, how much carbon to our best guess is your portfolio emitting? You know, what chemicals are, are, are the companies you're investing put in, putting into the environment? What, what's actually happening? What are the genuine, deeper risks? in your portfolio risks, not only to the, to the environment and ultimately to the value of your stocks, but risks to your soul, <laughs> you know, um, as well. And so Daisy tells it to you like it is. And I think it's a first with no vested interest. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? I'm a creator, you know, Creation relaxes me. Creation relaxes me. I love working with people. I love, you know, I love sitting around in a room, or even on Zoom, quite frankly, these days, which is mainly what's happening right now. Sitting around with amazing people with different lives and creating a project together and, and making something that's that's going to make a difference and, and or that might bring joy to people's lives or help people or influence the way people think or or... Yes, yeah, so people, people relax me. People relax me. What type of music do you listen to? I'm actually a jazz musician, a, a, a relatively crappy one, by the way. I, I certainly enjoy my jazz piano. Uh, um, so I love jazz. I love jazz. Um, jazz, jazz for me has got all of those things. I, I suppose there's, there's a science and an art to jazz that I really love the you know, when you start studying things like modality, the complexity of jazz, the, uh, I, there's something I, I love about it. And then putting that to one side, as I keep doing it, coming back to the emotional, I, I can just sit there and in, in a little jazz club with a little quartet playing. And, um, it used to be a smoky jazz club. That's not really allowed anymore. Now it's not smoky jazz club, but, but just that dark jazz club, a quartet in the background. Actually, I recently did a sculpture of Amy Winehouse, um, and it's called um, What a Jazz Genius Might Be Hearing. So it's fascinating. <laughs> what are you reading right now? What I plan to be reading right now, um, I'll, I'll talk about what I'm reading, but what I plan to be reading right now is an amazing book called Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what do you actually say it's a good read um but uh, actually at the moment i'm reading um adrian tchaikovsky he's an amazing writer that that it, it's set in the future and he looks at um humanity's um engagement with with other civilizations and the um complexities of communication 
that are wrong. If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? <laughs> Do you know what I'd love to be doing right now? I'd love to be doing a yoga retreat in some exotic location with a bunch of like healthy hippies talking about chakras and inner peace. Last question. <laughs> if you could magically talk into everyone's ear, everyone in the world, what would you say? Jim, I'm going to come back to anxiety. I know I'm harping on it and I don't want to, but I think, you know, the world is a very complex place at the moment. There's no, there's no denying that. And, you know, whether it's, it's geopolitics or financial markets or whatever, whoever you are, whether it's just inflation and the price of bread, the world is a complex place at the moment. And, and everybody is feeling some kind of anxiety and worry and you know, there's something going on inside all of us. You know, I would say, find your peace, let go of your fear. Everything's going to be okay. Thank you. You've been listening to Jonty Hurwitz, our special guest on Outside In. Jonty, as you have heard, um, is very human in a very special way. Um, I like his expression of, I am an explorer, and I think listening to this has helped us all explore ourselves. Thank you very much, Jonti. John, thank you. It's been wonderful. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCunnick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John McCunnick, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.